What is happening, everyone? This will be episode 46 of the Strength and Success podcast, or Strength and Success show. I still don't know which one it is. Uh, obviously, we record these live every Thursday at 1.30, and I'm just waiting on Riley to jump on. She'll jump on, and I will add her to the live broadcast as soon as she sends a request. There she is. She joined. And view, re- view request, and go live. So hopefully that should jump around here pretty soon, and if I didn't mess that up, which, you know, Pretty tech savvy. Not Hello. At all. Hello. <laughs> what is happening? No. So I, was, I was just saying, because last week I forgot it's like recording live and it's dead air for like the first 15 seconds of me just staring at it until you hop on. <laughs> but this is going to be episode 46 of the Strengths and Success podcast or show. I still don't know what it is. <laughs> You'd think after a year I would know what that is. But no. Um, no. Yeah. Show. Strengths and Success show. That's what we're sticking with. All right. We are. I'm a showman, so it's a show. So the Strength and Success Show, uh, unusual podcast because we record it live on Thursdays. It downloads for everyone every Monday, so if you can't stay with it, you can do it there. But also unusual because it's interactive. People can ask questions on the live, and we have questions that people have given us through the week, either through our Q&As in our story or just general questions that clients have asked that we really like that we tend to use. So I am Trevor Jaffe. Below me, maybe if your screen is the same, is Riley Presnell. Hello. Hello. This is the uh, 501 deadlift, Riley Presnell. I did that. <laughs> quite well, actually. Yeah, quite well. Um, for those who don't know, Riley didn't go off program. That, that was kind of communicated ahead of time if things are flying to take those, those weights. Uh, because of the way she posted it, was like, man, she went off program. I'm like, no, no, she didn't. <laughs> we had kind of discussed how the weights were moving and where it was at and how she was feeling ahead of time. So that was actually following the program and communicating with her coach which some people are better at than others, but <laughs> pretty proud of you. That was pretty cool. How do you feel about that? I feel really good about it. Um, yeah, it was on, on the menu was doubles. Or they were doubles at 8.5. Um, and last week I hit a PR triple at 457. And, you know, like after that session, Trevor and I were like, okay, well, like if it feels good, we'll push that double a little bit, kind of keeping in mind that, it would just, I kind of thought in my mind, it would just be doubles, whatever. So my aim going into yesterday was, or Wednesday, whenever you're watching this, um, was to aim for like 470 for a double. That was kind of the number that we were like, okay, that would be one, a PR, and uh, two, it's like within the range of the RPE or should be within the range of the RPE. And so I started my first double at 463 and I, I sent it to Trevor and I was like, I'm going to go up to 474 because it, it was easy. And I, I think the 474 might have been a tad bit easier than the 463. Like yeah. I position a little bit better. And so I sent it to him and I was like, okay, should I go up to like 480 or keep it there? Like I, you know, what, should I push this or what are we going to do? And he was like, no, take a 490 single. And um, so I did that and that was easy too, which already was a five pound uh, lifetime PR. And his response back to me was a, uh, you're full of pizza. If you don't load 501, you're a pussy. And I was like, oh, I'm not a pussy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I uh, loaded 501 and it moved. I mean, the, I've watched it, I mean, a million times since it happened. And every time I watch it, it seems like it, it's faster. I'm like, wow, that was so much faster than like, I thought it was in my head, like pulling the weight. If you watch the video, like, as soon as it clears the floor, you can see me kind of smile a little bit because I know that if I clear the floor, like I'm going to lock it out. I'm always fast off the floor. So if it slows down even remotely a little bit off the floor, I don't have it. 
um, I can grind a lockout pretty well. So I knew that once I got to that like middle sticking point that uh, I had it. So you can see like a small little smirk halfway up because I knew I had it. And uh, that was probably the most emotion I've ever shown at the top of a lift or ever was a smile. And that was all you get. And I, then I almost cried afterwards. So it's fine. <laughs> Uh, I think somebody commented that uh, no celebration. I'm like, no, no, no. Riley smiled. That was a huge Riley celebration. <laughs> the serial killer face is on point at all times, you know? Yeah. Funny. Oh, it was pretty cool. I was very proud of you. It was a big accomplishment. And people would always ask me when she's going to pull 500. And I always said when she wants to. And that was yesterday. So. Yeah, it's yeah. a long time, though. And that's kind of like what the um, our our podcast episode is power is built through persistence. And that's kind of where that came from is, you know, I came into, I came into powerlifting pretty strong already. Like I came in uh, at 181 and totaled over 1100 at my first meet. And that is, that's strong. I mean, that's a, that's, I think you, it's like above average. Like it's for a first meet, that's very, very strong. And, you know, from there it got, overwhelming for me because I put a lot of external pressure on myself and I was like okay well I set the bar so high with my first meet like I have to keep climbing that and uh it kind of spiraled down I actually told Trevor today I feel like you know I haven't I haven't shown up for myself with lifting since my first meet basically like it seems like everything kind of just spiraled down and um you know I about I would say like it's been like two years it's been about two years since I was no longer a 181. Um, I started like slowly losing weight. Uh, big, I made big life changes, started losing weight, got down to like the 165 class, um, and then kind of kept losing weight and eating better and getting on a better routine and whatever, and would consistently weigh. I hit, well, I was like 154 yesterday or, or whatever, but I compete at 148 and, um, I'm hitting, I hit 501. And that was a number that I never even got close to. Well, kind of close. I got, I hit 480 at 181. So. Yeah. Her 480 from the XPC, I'm going to say she never got close to 500 because that 480 literally is a 17 second deadlift. It is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 480.5 would have broken her. <laughs> yes. There are still people that will like tag me in their posts of like, uh, like a really slow, like deadlift grind. And they'll be like, oh, it was a grind, but it was nothing like Riley's grind on her 480 XBC pole. Like, I still get tagged in that. Um, I'm very stubborn, so I didn't like to give up back then. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's taken me two years to, one, not only get the strength back that I had initially at a lower weight class, and, but now I'm, I'm just now gaining more. And everyone gets really, really caught up in, like, well, I'm not strong enough today. And powerlifting is a long game. Like you have to consistently get stronger over a long period of time. And that's not going to happen in one training cycle. It's not going to happen in four weeks. Like you can say like, well, I should be stronger because I ate well and I slept well and I hydrated. You can say all of those things and sure. Yeah. You should be better in some aspects because you're doing the things that you need to do to get better, but it's not going to take four to six weeks in order to see significant gains. Some people still are fighting, for a year or two years for a five pound PR. It took me two years to hit a five pound PR. It, yeah. took, two years, it took me two years to hit a two pound PR on Ben. We, we've talked about that a lot of, at, at seminars, the attrition rate of the sport. 
because it gets harder. And that's the whole point of power is built through persistence because Riley's just described a two and a half year period where she set the bar so high, she kept focusing on the total number, even though she went from a 181, she was above the weight class 181, she was like 184, 185, and she competed at the XPC. She went from like a 181 to a 165 to a 148 and almost maintained 95% of her strength. And now she's at a point where she's physically stronger as a 148er than she was as a 181, even though she set that bar so high. But that took 2.5 years. And I, I talked about this in many, many seminars where, you know, you can look around the room and 50% of the people in that room won't be competing in powerlifting in five years. 75% won't be competing in 10. You know, if you're beyond that, you're kind of a unicorn in this sport. I know Matt Berry hopped on here and he's probably been competing longer than I've been alive. Sorry, old man. <laughs> I mean, where I can. But it's one of those things where that's the true thing that people lose sight of. And we get it all the time from clients. Can I work on this next block? Can we do this next block? It's like, dude, or do that. Next block is not how you're going to see that progress. It's through this next year you're going to see that progress. I don't want to aim for a five pound increase only every four weeks because that's not going to happen linearly. I want to aim for better form, better development, better positions, better overall strength, identifying weaknesses, building better habits outside of the gym, your sleep, your, your um, nutrition, you know, your recovery, your mobilizations. All these things are what Riley really began to take on. She talked about life changes. They were dramatic from living from Chicago to Florida and then South Florida and so forth. But they were really more of habit building, being consistent. Uh, most of you who don't know Riley, she hates protein and was like eating like 50 to 60 grams a day of protein, if that, when I first met her, because she hates protein unless it's like chicken nuggets, <laughs> 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 which, is, which is not conducive to powerlifting progress. Yes, a 65 block, that's actually true. You got to be strong 365 days a year. But it was learning to make sure she hit her protein requirements, having structured. Uh, another facet that she struggles with was like hydration. Now she carries a bottle around to make sure she gets every day. Those habits along with the training is what led to the PR. And that comes from being persistent or as Riley might call it, stubbornness. Wanting to succeed so bad you are stubborn enough to A, not quit, but B, do this day in and day out for years, not a fucking block. One block is not going to make that significant of a difference. It all compounds together over time. Well, realistically, one year doesn't even equate to a significant amount of difference if you plan on doing this for a long time. You know, if you plan on doing this for 10 years, that's only 10 per one year is only 10% of that, you know? So if you're so hyper-focused on like, okay, well, this block, I didn't, I didn't PR everything. So what? Did you improve other ways? Did your technique improve? Did you learn something about yourself? Like that, I feel like that is important too. Like when I'm working with uh, a brand new client, their first block is pretty basic, right? Like I just want to see, I want to see how they squat bench and deadlift. I want to see what specific uh, variations look like. I want to see their floor press to see if their triceps are strong. I want to see their wide grip. I want to see their uh, good morning, whatever it is. Like I want to see what it is that they could be better on. And a couple of them have been like, oh, it's a pretty basic intro block. I'm like, yeah, because I'm trying to learn you. Like that first block is how I figure out what you're not good at. So that way I know where to go with you in the future. So yeah, it may be uh, boring, but the first block, like I see, okay, well, you really struggle off your chest. So that's what we're going to focus on the next block. So if you're learning something about yourself, even if you didn't PR, or even if you feel like you kind of backslid a little bit, because that does happen too. Sometimes we backslide and we don't progress. And that comes from a lot of external 
issues and mindset and all that kind of things. But if you learn something about yourself, like, oh, I fatigue too, I fatigue too fast doing this, or I don't recover from this, that is important too. And that's good to know in the long, in the long term of things. Like it's, it's hard not to be hyper-focused on things and it's hard not to be upset when you've gone for a block and you tried to hit a PR and you didn't hit a PR doesn't mean you're not strong enough. It just means that there are other factors affecting that or other things to work on in order to hit that PR. Um, I mean, I, like I said, I went two years without hitting a single PR in any of the three lifts. And now I have finally hit two lifetime PRs. And one of them was a 15 pounds and that's significant. And the other one was two. So it's not always going to be this massive, wow, you hit a 20 pound PR. The longer that you do this, the harder it's going to be to add 50, 75, 100 pounds to your total. Sometimes you may only add 10 pounds. Sometimes you'll add five. That's just yeah. how it crumbles. The closer you get to your max strength levels, the smaller those gains are going to be, but the harder you're going to have to work for them too. It's going to come easy in the beginning. It's going to become difficult later. And that's when you really have to specialize and dial in. So persistence is how you build power. Be stubborn as hell about the process. Don't fret about it because chances are, if you're having a bad day in the gym, that's just fatigue. Uh, Greg Pinora tells a fantastic story about how Verkhonshensky, um, who pretty much followed a lot of the periodization models we use nowadays in Russia, discovered about fatigue management, you know, trying to do too much too soon. And he had a great story about a pregnant track athlete, how she came back after a week off and everything was better after having a week of rest. So great story. So if you ever get a chance to attend one of our seminars, ask Greg to tell that story about Verkhonshensky and pregnant women. It's not as provocative as it sounds, <laughs> but it's a good example of what rest can do. All right, so let's get to some of the questions we got. Uh, There's so much change in here. Oh, that's just a, a statement, not a question. All right, so we got some questions. I think we have like 18 questions plus or something like that. So what's the first one you got for me, Riley? Yeah. Or for us? If you uh, we don't get to all the questions this episode, we will continue to carry them off to the other. So anyone that we missed, we're not ignoring you. We're just trying to get them all in. Okay, so the first one, I'm actually going to take that long question from Nikki, and I kind of... Uh, paraphrased it a little bit. So right. is any tips or ideas in helping someone who is very new to the sport? They come from an athletic background, but having they're having a hard time gaining the base of strength back and we don't want to overcomplicate it. So any tips or ideas in helping someone like that? And she gave an example of them struggling to bench the bar for, for one rep and not being able to go beyond that. So it was a great way. She asked about how to dumb down programming for them. Uh, funny enough, Riley and I had a conversation similar to this a little while ago. And she talked about progressing the upper body strength of women because this was a female track athlete. And one of the things Riley really talks about and loves is getting better at very foundational movements for high reps and high volume, such as push-ups and pull-ups and dips and stuff like that. Because women tend to need to add more muscle mass to their upper body to see a strength increase. And that's one of the better ways of doing it because you're also getting that spatial awareness, that proprioceptive gain of learning how to move your scapula and control them for dips and push-ups and pull-ups. Um, not everyone can do pull-ups, obviously, off the bat. So Riley has an instructor video off of progressing your pull-ups by starting with inverted rows and so forth. So the first thing I'd probably do if she's struggling to bench the bar is maybe have her do just singles, but a lot of singles with the bar. And you can even start with partial range. If she's struggling to get a full range single, have her do pin presses with the bar. And so it could be 10 times one pin presses from like 50% up, get her used to it. And when she can progress that to a point where she's able to get multiple reps, bring the pins lower over time, but she needs um, inverted volume rather than sets of reps. If she can't do the bar for more than one or two reps, she's obviously not gonna need sets of 10 at that point. With that movement, she's gonna need skill practice. So start her with a pin press for like 10 times one or 10 times two as she gets better to give her that skill practice doing that. 
if she's not able to control the bar, that means she doesn't know how to use her upper back. And that's where like the inverted rows or seal rows will really help her, especially with a pause, learning how to squeeze and control her upper back. So that's what you want to look at. If she's lacking control, that's what your priority should be to build. Build and establish control and position. So having her do uh, push-ups, inverted rows for higher and higher reps is going to help build her muscular stamina, but also her physical control. Because if you just give her the bar and ask her to do sets and reps and she can't control it, she's not necessarily going to get better at it unless you build that control elsewhere. That's going to be a better position builder than, say, dumbbell work because she doesn't know how to stabilize the bar. Two dumbbells moving separately is going to be tougher. She has to learn how to control her body first and get that spatial awareness, and then you can lower the pins over time. But do that first. That's going to be her main movement because that's what you're trying to build is her bench press. So do the 10 times 1 pin press first. When she can get to, like, 10 times 5, lower the pins and add weight and so forth. Or maybe every third week, have her do a full range single with it and see if you're progressing so you can track and measure it. Yeah. Over, um, over like, quarantine, COVID and everything, when there were – I had lifters that didn't have access to bench pressing. Um, majority of what I had the women do was, like, max rep push-ups. Uh, if they were able to set up inverted rows, I love those too. Um, like, a deficit push-up to where their hands are elevated on something and they have to go to a full stretch position. But I would have, like, max rep push-ups – uh, or inverted rows or assisted pull-ups or whatever it was two to three times a week. And a lot of those women came back from quarantine and they actually ended up hitting a bench PR, even though they weren't able to bench for however long that they were in quarantine, they came back and everything was more stable. Like Trevor mentioned, um, they were able to move the bar better. They actually could feel the upper back control. Um, it's, if it's someone like this who doesn't necessarily have any plans to compete anytime soon but just wants to build a base of strength you can kind of get them to train a little bit more like a bodybuilder um after the like pin presses like trevor's mentioning or if it gets to the point where she is able to bench the bar for a couple of reps you can progress that each week so if she finally gets to a point where she can hit it for three reps the next week you aim to hit it for four reps or you add another set whatever it is but after that i would focus on um, as much like row work as you possibly can, like single arm rows, uh, chest supported rows, seal rows, whatever it is. And then lots and lots of push-ups, pull-ups, inverted rows. They just don't have any, they should have self-aware, they should have body awareness because she mentioned that this person was in rugby, I think. Um, so they should have some self-awareness or self um, body awareness from playing sports, but you can lose it. Like it does go away if you haven't done it for a long time. So you're basically just trying to like grease the groove again and find that body awareness again, but you're not going to find it with being so hyper-specialized on just bench pressing that they're not getting anything else in. Like they need something else to stimulate that body awareness first before they can get to the barbell. Absolutely. And they definitely need to progress that. Um, she played rugby, so she's lower body familiar, but not very upper body familiar and you know you can use because the weights are lighter and she's a lighter young female she's going to recover faster you can use a frequency as well this might be someone who does those 10 times one singles like three times a week with the push-ups and the inverted rows and so forth uh, a great example of building the bench press stacy when i work with her she had a 320 bench press at 148 and one of the things stacy and i always talked about the best way to build your bench press isn't necessarily more benching it's more rowing build yeah. a bigger where you can stabilize that bar to drive off of. You'll never find a strong bench presser who doesn't also have a strong upper back. Yeah. Okay, um, also bench related. What are some good ways to change leg position to improve leg drive on the bench? Understanding what leg drive is is more important than where you put your feet. 
People hyper-focus on the wrong thing. Now, I don't care if you have your feet tucked, feet flat, feet wide, feet flared. You're going to go with what's giving you either the best drive off your body or the best stability possible for you to press that weight. So it's one of those things where people are like, how do I improve my leg drive? You improve it by understanding what it actually is. It's not clenching your glutes and thrusting your hips to the sky. That is hip extension, not leg drive. Leg drive is coming from the quads. You're going to lock your quads down to either create stability so you can't move when you're rigid and you can press, or you're going to knee extend like you're doing a leg press or leg extension to push your body back to get momentum up into the bar off of your chest. Some people are a hard driver where they use a lot of leg drive, myself included, and other people just use a lot of leg drive to stay, stay stable and lock themselves down. Uh, Riley has tried both and currently has been more of a hard leg driver to drive that bar up. It's going to vary by lifter. Don't worry so much about where your feet are, whether they're flat, tucked, wide, or flared, unless your butt's popping. If your butt is popping, that means you're doing more hip extension than knee extension. Um, uh, Ashton, uh, too buff for this, has posted this off. It's one of his favorite videos where I demonstrate the difference of knee extension on the bench press versus the actual hip extension. Hip extension is always going to lead to butt pop. That means you have poor spatial awareness on the bench press or a poor set of pattern where you're too high arching through your lumbar spine and you're hip extending. If that's the case and you can't stop hip extending, then you widen your feet or flare your feet out, toes out as much as you can to limit how much range you can actually extend your hips and try and reduce your hips coming off the bench. But more importantly, learn where to drive from and that's your quads. Your quads are going to drive you up and back, not hips to sky. You're not putting anything into the bar by extending your hips upward. Because the whole point of leg drive is to push back against its great force going up. The Russians teach this as almost like a, a prone, I'm sorry, supine overhead press. You know, you're going to drive the legs back so the bar's almost flying off of you as if you're pressing overhead, almost like a push jerk. But you're doing it from a lay down position, letting the bar flow back. Realistic. Like the further that you have your feet back, like more towards your head, the more like hip mobility that requires. And if you're inhibiting your hip extension and you have poor hip mobility, you're just going to pop. Like the, your butt is just going to come off the bench. So if you're someone who doesn't have incredible hip mobility, you're gonna have to, you're, you need your feet to be a little bit more forward. This question actually comes from a client of mine and she's pretty forward and flat footed. Um, but her issue is that she definitely drives up like instead of instead of trying to push herself back into the barbell or trying to kick with her feet planted she likes to try to push the ground away like push the ground down um, and then that's when her hips extend so for her it's focusing on trying to kick or knee extend um, but she doesn't she isn't limited in her feet being too far back to where she has limited hip extension she just has to focus on putting the force in the right direction and yeah. a lot of times you're putting people are trying to put the force straight down into the floor when their feet are flat. And that doesn't work because that's when hips just come up. When uh -huh. flat, you have to push the force forward. So that way you can drive back. If You're going to go in the opposite direction. So if you drive your feet forward, you're going to drive yourself back into the bar. And that's how you get the knee extension instead of the hip extension. Easy cue to remember is to shove your toes into the fronts of your shoes. When you're driving through your legs, shove your toes forward, shove your toes forward to the fronts of your shoes because that's going to be pushing you back away, not up. Yep. Okay. Right. Um, how to externally rotate hips out of the hole on squat while keeping an upright torso. Heels come up without lifters on. Okay. So that means two things. One of two things. Uh, the first thing people will jump on if your heels are coming up is your ankle mobility, and that's not always the case. 
Um, it's more likely a stability issue if you can't externally rotate out of the hole, but also you shouldn't be externally rotating out of the hole. When you're in the very bottom position, that's when your hips are actually going to internally rotate. They go internal first, so your feet need to pronate slightly before you can come back out. They're going to go internal before they go back to external. You're going to see more external rotation halfway up and above parallel than you will see below it. Stop fighting that. That is your body trying to create force. It's trying to absorb force and reverse force. And if you're fighting that, you're actually inhibiting your body from being able to create that force. People freak out about knee cave all the time and think that's a bad thing. That is your adductor magnus. That is one of your primary hip extensors. It's one of the reasons you can get out of the damn hole. Let it do its job. Don't inhibit it from doing a job. If you're trying to externally rotate to come out of the hole, you're using a weaker hip extensor by trying to use the glute medius instead of the glute max because for the glute max to get you up, so does that adductor magnus have to contract too. Stop resisting that. Stop fighting that. Uh, simple solution is put heels on. Like if you feel more comfortable, more rooted, just put the heels on. But chances are you're losing stability by trying to fight that, and that's why your body's having that issue. The more stable your trunk is, the less you're going to see a significant cave. You can look at Dan Green and see that his knees come in before he comes back out, and he's squatting like 800 in sleeves. It's not a big deal. It's one of those things where don't fight where your body wants to be under load. Your body will tell you its strongest position. Don't resist that position under load. Enhance it, strengthen it, get better at it by stiffening your torso and your core. Now, for the offset chance that that's actually an ankle mobility issue, you simply just improve your ankle mobility. It's not really hard to stretch your calves every day and work on knees over toes and stuff like that to get better ankle mobility. It's really just a matter of being lazy if you don't do that. But chances are it's probably more you resisting your body's natural pattern to want to use its adductors to create internal rotation and pronation to come out of the hole. Don't fight that. Also, as uh, she mentioned something about keeping an upright torso, that's also going to look different for everyone. If you're a longer limbed lifter, you're going to need a little bit of forward lean to get into position just because you have to make room for your body. Uh, if you have a very short torso, you're going to main maintain an upright position because your torso is short. It doesn't have anywhere to move. But as a, I just had this conversation with the client yesterday where she was like, oh, I wish I didn't lean forward so much. But she is tall and she has a lot of limbs and she has a very long torso, very long legs very long arms, like she's going to have to have some sort of forward lean in order to even get to depth. Because if you're not making room for yourself, you have to, you know, you're externally rotating into the hole. So that way you can make room for your body. But if you're just going to stop moving when your uh, torso starts leaning forward, you're never going to hit depth because you have so much limb. So you have to make room for your body. Like what Trevor's saying is don't fight its pattern. Yes, if you are folding like a long chair, there are obviously issues there and you may have a bracing issue or your upper back is not super strong or it's not tense under the bar or whatever that may be. But it's okay to have a little bit of knee cave. It's okay to have a little bit of forward lean. There's a range for all of these things and it all depends upon your limb lengths. Really. Also, the lower your bar position, the more likely you are to have forward lean. You're never going to see someone who squats upright with a true low bar. Yep. Unless mid-bar placement, you're not going to see an upright torso. Uh, while we're on the subject, I don't care how low your chest goes. That doesn't make it depth. If your chest <laughs> below your knees, that doesn't mean you hit depth. Your hips can still be higher. I hate when people are like, well, look how deep my chest is. That's not what the judges are looking at. They're looking at your hips. If you don't break parallel, you didn't break parallel. Simple as that. I don't care how much your tits hit the floor. That just means you don't know how to squat. I'm not looking at your nipples. I'm looking at your hip crease. <laughs> Sometimes I'm looking at their nipples. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, how to fix elbow flare on bench. There's a couple different ways of doing this. And first and foremost, if you're flaring, 
that means you probably aren't retracting and depressing your scapula down. I'm busy doing this on camera. It looks like I'm pushing my tits up. Uh, Riley has a video up, up somewhere where I'm actually demoing, and she's talking about having to depress your shoulders down to the pad, and then we talked about rising the sternum up. If you're in this position, even without the bar, if I do that, if I depress my shoulders and rise my sternum up, my elbows are automatically in. If you're losing this position, that's probably why your elbows are flared. Bodybuilders bench with a flat back and their shoulders out so they can stretch their pecs and do that. If you've lost the depression and the retraction, that's more likely why you're flaring than anything else, that it means you need to strengthen that position. So you probably need to work on isometric holds in that position. Um, a great way to do that would be like reverse band benching, where you actually hang the barbell from thick bands and pull it down your chest, trying to rise your chest up and hold. Hold for two to three seconds each rep. Build the position so you can hold it and maintain it. And we talked about the first question. Um, a, a strong bencher usually has a strong upper back. If your elbows are flaring, you probably have a weak mid-upper back, and that's what you need to fix. It's not a form issue at that point. It's more of a strength issue of not being able to hold the best position. Other ways that I've seen this happen, too, is someone who is over-tucking. Um, I actually have a client in mind that I think about when I read this question is she over tucks because she has really poor uh, serratus and she has no control over how much she tucks. And so when she comes, when she pushes up out of the hole, she flares immediately. She has a, she has a relatively strong bench because she's learned how to make that position stronger. But when I've given her things like reverse grip bench, her control of that over tuck and that flare has gotten a lot better because the reverse grip bench helps focus on strengthening that serratus and not and working on that position so a lot of the times i see it that someone over tucks and that's why they're flaring so they may not have as good of uh, strengthening they don't have as strong of a serratus so they can't actually control their lats to retract and hold that position as well which goes back to forcing themselves in a position under load their body doesn't want to be in so you're looking that over-tucking is forcing your body to external rotation hard, further and harder than you should be in order for you to do that. So, you know, if you're forcing your body under load to move in a pattern or position it doesn't want to, it's going to look for stability elsewhere, and that's what's going to cause that. Yep. Compensate no matter what. Yep. Um, okay. So not really a question, more of a statement. Uh, twerking during conventional deadlifts. That's usually someone who's gone into an excessive anterior tilt, you know, you might be born that way. But if you're twerking during the deadlifts, you've probably broken your brace, broken your brace. And that twerk is coming because you're struggling to push your hips through because you've lost that bracing ability. And if you go into that lumbar tilt, it's very hard to contract your glutes because you've lengthened them. So almost you need to go into that posterior tilt at that point and tuck the ribs and pelvis together. Uh, neck to nuts need to stay in the same line. So if you've broken that neck to nuts or occiput to anus line, you're going to see that twerking towards the top because your inability to hip extend at lockout. Some people will compensate and try and just build a stronger lumbar spine by doing like heavy rack pulls. And that's gonna work to a degree. But if you still have the form issue, you're only gonna progress that as far as your form goes. So fix the form, fix your bracing, learn how to stay stacked, get stronger at it, and you'll have a better, better pull, better deadlift. Everyone I see that does this has their chin lifted towards the ceiling and their butt yeah. way because so they have no, there's no base of stability. You're no longer, you are a banana now like no and close the chain yeah exactly <laughs> stacy used to do that you can hear me screaming in the xpc video <laughs> and you'll see she comes up really fast with 550 and then gets stuck two inches from lockout and that bar doesn't lock out until her chin comes back in and she's able to tuck the chin and the, and the the tailbone together is that line so it's really funny because you can actually see it. it's almost in like slow motion you see me screaming chin tuck 
And uh, after she turned around, after she hit that, when she broke the record, she just, like, threw her arm around and chin-checked me. Uh, it was, like, black and blue for, like, a week. But she laughed, like, a minute later, and she saw the video, she's like, fucking chin-talk. <laughs> I don't remember who, uh, who showed us the video. Oh, man, I wish I could. It might have been Kevin McHugh. I don't remember who had it. Somebody had the video. And that was, like, her first thing. She's like, oh, man, if only I brought that chin in sooner. It's like, you can literally see it. So if someone goes into neck extension, chances are they're going into lumbar extension, and you're not going to lock shit out in lumbar extension. Um, next question is, best advice to a 21-year-old aspiring strength coach? Uh, spend more time aspiring. What I mean by that is, you know, at 21 years old, you haven't experienced a lot. You've gotten a tremendous amount of probably education through books, but not a lot of practical testing on your own. And I don't love when people espout what they learned in a book as if it's their own information, of their own knowledge, it's somebody else's. You haven't tested and applied that theory and not everything works for everyone. You can't take, because sports science is really not telling you what's true or untrue, it's telling you what's mostly true. Because you have to remember they're working with a small population. It's not necessarily high level athletes or specific athletes. A lot of it is general population who are well-trained, which means they go to the gym for an hour, three times a week for more than a year consistently. That's what's considered well-trained in the most strength studies. That's not what I would consider well-trained, but that's what they consider well-trained for the standard. So you have to understand there's a generalization of what's mostly true. And there's going to be people who don't fit that mold or that model or have different lives. And a lot of the studies that come from American sports science are done in college students who are your age, 21 years old. So if you get a 35-year-old housewife who has to take her kids to soccer three days a week and has to cook food and also has a full-time job, she's not going to respond the same way that 21-year-old does. And when you say strength coach, I'm assuming it means you want to work with athletes more so than anything else. And powerlifting coaches are strength coaches. They're just very specific to one each. You want to apply more time to really learn your own data and do things. It's one of those things where, like the podcast is called, persistence builds power, or power is built through persistence. You need to be persistently practicing your craft to a point where you can say it without regurgitating somebody else's information, what you have found to be true, what you have found to be beneficial, and what helps certain populations of people. Because you don't necessarily know that you're going to work for an athletic team. The private sector generally, for the most part, pays more until you're at a high enough level where you're working with, say, an NFL team or a collegiate team and so forth. So you have to decide what direction you want to go in and really apply, 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 test, apply, test, apply over and over and over again until you have more data. Because I can tell you as somebody who has been around this for a very, very long time, every five or six years, the opinion sways and changes and the studies tend to cancel each other out and find different things or they're misunderstood. Uh, I had a conversation with, with Riley, it was like a week ago or two weeks ago, whatever it was, about two different PRI guys, which is postural restoration, who both work with athletes who extrapolated completely different opinions off the same information. That's where it gets very, very confusing. One was pontificating for pronation and interrotation out of the hole from squat to activate the hamstrings and glutes more. And the other was pioneering external rotation out of the hole to activate the glutes more. They were reading the exact same information, but they extrapolated their differences from that. So you have to understand that you personally need to test and apply and create your own principles and theories and not sit there and regurgitate something from a book. Anyone can memorize a book. Not everyone can teach it. Spend more time working with people, working with athletes, learning how to cue, learning how to develop your communication. Because if you're working with a team, you might have to teach 22 or 30 people at the same time a movement, and not everyone's going to have the physical awareness or the understanding of your cues. You have to learn how to, and I hate to say this, dumb it down to its finest position. 
how dumb is neck to nuts? But everybody knows where their neck is and everybody knows where their nuts is. But if you were to talk about aligning your cervical spine with your lumbar spine, most people are going to look at you like, huh? <laughs> you have to get to a point where you've worked on your communication level where you can, you can explain the concepts you know that are complex to somebody else in a matter that is simple. Basically, I think part of what you're getting at too is like finding your own voice. Like you can, you can read all that you want and you can mimic all the coaches that you admire all you want, but if you don't actually understand it, you're going to have a hard time applying that. So, I mean, this can be specific to any sort of coaching, whether it's powerlifting or whatever it is. But if you're just trying to mimic what someone that you admire is doing, you're not actually understanding it. You're just mimicking it. You're parroting them. So finding your own voice. And even if that means that the number one person that you look up to, even if that means that you disagree with them, you can still admire someone and what they do and disagree with them. So finding your own voice and your own style of coaching or programming or whatever it is, is really important because that's what makes you, you. Um, yeah. Like my, I know that a lot of people probably reach out to me because I have the psychology background and I know how to communicate with lifters. And I know how to get them in a better mindset. And like, that's specific to me. Like there are other people that do that. Yeah, I'm not the only one, but that is my specific thing in my specific niche. And that's kind of all the clients that I seem to get is like, they want to grow pretty much 90% of the people that reach out to me whenever I get their intake form, when I ask like what their goals are, majority of their goals are getting more strong, uh, getting stronger mentally and physically. So like, that's, that is my voice. That's the voice that I found. So aspiring to strength coach need to find their own voice. And also um, not worrying about being, not being scared of being wrong because you're going to be wrong. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do the wrong thing. You're going to tell someone to do something wrong. You're going to teach someone the wrong way. Um, you're going to piss someone off. You're going to make someone say that you're a bad coach. You're going to, you're going to do all of those things. Like it's inevitable. It's hard to fight that. So you have to be okay with being wrong. And when you are wrong, just say, okay, I learned from that. I know not to do that. Or I know how to approach this differently next time. Or here's what I could have done better, whatever. But you're going to be wrong. You're going to coach someone incorrectly. You're going to not be the best fit for someone. You're going to give someone a wrong cue. You're going to say something incorrectly. It is what it is. But you, can't, you will never grow if you're too afraid of being wrong that you don't try it anyways. That's how you learn. Yeah, that's how you learn. That's how you deal with it. At no point in my career have I ever been 100% accurate or perfect. I'm going to make the wrong evaluation or the wrong mistake or the wrong judgment. Um, it could be as simple as, you know, being at a meet and calling a number when somebody had more or being at a meet and calling a number that didn't have it. Or it could be as, as simple as trying to focus on the wrong area that they didn't need and stuff like that. And, you know, an example of, of Riley's deadlift. We focused so much on her ability to contract her lats because she was folding over. Um, and that wasn't really what made the difference. It was focusing on her lumbar strength and making her low back stronger because her lats are stupidly strong. She's able to knock out like 18 to 20 pull-ups and has always been able to scoop that bar off the floor fast, but it would fall apart towards the lockout. We simply made her low back stronger with a lot of conventional work and heavier and heavier and heavier conventional work to a point where even though she was 35 pounds less, she pulled 17 pounds difference from her 480 at the XPC to 464 in the gym. 463 in the gym and that's what led to the 501 was prioritizing low back strength not prioritizing a position or pattern and so forth because she already understood it she had it but it just wasn't there so that was my mistake i spent the year focusing on that lack contraction and it just it's not that it didn't get any work because obviously the lats were strong enough but it wasn't the piece that was missing of that puzzle it helped my bench though i think phenomenal <laughs> much better control with the bench press now yeah 
how do you program for someone after a meet? Like after the week of minimal to no barbell, how do you know where to start them at exercise and strength wise? Well, if you're looking at their lift from the meet, you're trying to identify areas of opportunity that they can continue to progress and grow. That would be the first thing I would do is look at their meat lifts and see, you know, if someone goes nine for nine and everything looks great, it's really hard to do that because, you know, you, you didn't really see a lot of breakdown of things drop. But if they went like seven for nine or six for nine and you saw some flaws in their, their third attempts, it's a lot easier to pinpoint that. Generally, I will usually use a recovery week for every athlete. Um, some athletes who are just itching, I started using that recovery week where it's just three days a week of a lot of push-ups, pull-ups, dips, box jumps, kettlebell swings, carries, sled drags kind of thing. Just a lot of physical conditioning stuff to get their heart rate back up and to not load their joints. Uh, I started including a fourth day for some of my more hardcore lifters who have to lift. It's, it's the end of their week and it's just a basic light squat SBD day. You know, it's a squat bench deadlift day. Really light, like 60% for triples, just so they can get under a freaking bar because they freak out if they don't. But that's usually where I'll start. I want to unload their joints a little bit, unload their mind, give them something they don't normally do as it's fun and challenging, and they look forward to that barbell again. From there, you start reestablishing work capacity. So whatever your barbell movements you choose that they need to improve upon or fix, you start climbing that volume up. You know, it could be like three sets of eight the first week, and it might be four sets of 10 the second week and so forth. You start pushing reps up a little bit, or it might be a lightweight for rep max. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of doing like one boards for max reps with either a wide grip or a close grip, because wide grips building the pecs more and close grips building the triceps. But a max rep set is going to give them a lot of volume at 60%. They're probably hitting somewhere between like 15 or 20 reps there uh, without a pause. You know, so you're starting to accrue some volume back up and some work capacity and some conditioning before you're loading them heavy again. If you make the mistake of going right back into heavy lifting and heavy loading, you're either gonna burn them out mentally or burn them out physically. Give their body and their minds time to recover, even if they don't want it. Uh, I have so many athletes like, I feel great, I can go right back to it. Yes, you could, that does not mean you should. Your body needs time to adapt and adjust and mentally you want to look forward to the bar. It's a big mistake when people jump right back into barbell work because they feel good. You feel good because you had a great day, but physically and emotionally, your body is starting to wind and break down and that's gonna catch up to you eventually. Well, that and uh, sometimes they want to jump right to the barbell because they didn't have a good day and they're like, oh, I want to prove to myself that I did. Well, if you were that fatigued that you did poorly on meet day, you're going to be even more fatigued uh, going back to the barbell immediately. So yes, I understand that you want to get back to the barbell and that you want to prove to yourself or whoever that you are better than what you sh showed on meet day. But the way to do that is by starting back at square one and identifying what the needs are, like Trevor mentioned, like that's... If I get videos from a meet, that's the first thing I'm looking at is like, okay, where did they, like, I want them to send me their misses. A lot of the times lifters won't send the miss and I'm like, okay, send me your, send me what you missed. So that way I know what it is that went wrong. And then that's how I can choose exercises for them. Um, after the, I do this, a similar thing where the first week is essentially no barbell, lots of rows, pull-ups, push-ups, uh, sled drags, whatever it is. And then that first week, First two weeks back, I'm generally keeping them within the 10 to 12 rep range just to get that conditioning back up, especially if they're not in like another meat prep. So they're probably going to have like three, uh, three sets of eight, three sets of 10, three sets of 12, whatever it is, because you have made yourself deconditioned for the meat that you need to get conditioned again. The whole point of peak is to minimize fatigue. And that's why you see like just singles, just two or your, your accessory work is very light or it's only your back off work is only like 
two sets of three or one set of three or whatever it is, like you're deconditioning yourself for peaks. That way you can use maximal strength. So you have to get that conditioning back after um, the meet. So that way you can build back up and get stronger again. But you have to get conditioned first because if you're so deconditioned that you're struggling to do one set of 10, you know that you need it. And that's what most lifters say is like, they're like, I'm struggling for on this, you know, three by 10. I'm like, that's because you need it. <laughs> I was just about to say the number one thing we usually hear like the first week or two back is anything more than five reps is cardio. I was like, that just shows how out of shape you freaking are. Five reps is cardio for you. Yes. Yeah. So 10 seconds. I feel bad for your boyfriend or your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first two weeks back, I prioritize making sure that everything is in a hypertrophy rep range. I push lots of reps for uh, the accessory work. And generally it is still heavier on the accessory work than it is the barbell work for like the first two to three weeks. Um, they'll definitely have a main movement. So that way they can start like greasing the groove again with like bench and squat and deadlift. But everything after that is kind of just, you know, shuttling more blood, getting conditioned again. And then whenever it's time, then I will start adding in like the specific exercises. That'll be like week three or four. I'll add in the specific exercises that I found that they needed based off of where they failed at in the meet. Mm -hmm. All right, what else do we got? Are more culture neutral flavors possibly a thing in the future? Down the line in the future, you know, as the brand grows and, and customer loyalty grows and we start to get to a point where it's, it's covered its own costs and it's paying for itself and doing things and it's growing, definitely we'll offer more options and flavors out there. But it's just not a priority until it reaches a certain size, you know. It's, it's got to grow over time. So the more you guys support the brand and buy it, and the more you guys share it and get people involved with it, the more likely that's going to happen. The more quiet you are about what supplements you use and, and don't help grow the brand, the less likely that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's only, I think that people forget it's only been five months. We've only yeah, been brand new. Yeah, we've only been launched for five months. And like, we did come out of the gate with quite a bit of products. Like we didn't come out of the gate with just one pre-workout and a protein. We have 14 products right out of the gate. So yes, we definitely want to add more flavors and other things like that. But like Trevor mentioned, it's not a priority. Like there will be more, but we are just interested in consistently growing and making sure that people are getting, um, trying the products and letting us know that they like them and getting like feedback from them and whatnot. So uh, it's only been five months. Quit rushing us. <laughs> <laughs> Wait from Russia, bitch. So why are you rushing? That might just be his favorite song of all time. <laughs> Careful song. Yeah, Pin Juice. Pin Juice is, her, is like her, her, her deadlift day song of choice. Pin Juice radio on, on Pandora is like her deadlift radio of choice. Excellent. <laughs> what else do we got? Uh, any mobility drills you would recommend to almost anyone in powerlifting? Great question. Um, I know Riley answered this in her story to a degree, and I love the answer because it's so spot on. Most of us sit in front of a computer or sit in front of our phones at this point in time. So I've never met a powerlifter who couldn't benefit from more thoracic mobility and thoracic extension. Nine out of 10 times, that's where someone sucks under deadlift is their poor thoracic mobility. And because we're always in this forward head posture, they need to improve that. So thoracic extension work, thoracic mobility, and hip flexors tend to be tight because we're also sitting. So I would say some simple things as simple as if you want to go passive stretching, a couch stretch, you know, daily or every other day. If you want to go a little bit more dynamic, the Astagrass foot squat, the ATG foot squat is a great way to improve both ankle mobility and uh, hip flexor length and so forth. So, you know, it's hard to say that you should just pick one. 
but it's one of those things where if you pick one or two and do them every day, it's a lot easier. You don't have to do the same ones every day, but if you were to do say something like prone swimmers for two sets of 10 mixed with the couch stretch every day, that would take you all two minutes and you'd have better hip and shoulder mobility. And then the next day you went and did something like forward wall slides and single leg RDLs are just body weight. You'd have better hamstring length and shoulder function, you know, pick one or two. I have my daily dose of movement, which is 10 minutes of movement every morning after breakfast that I will do every day. And I usually mix things up from like a wall lean tibialis raise to, you know, um, uh, adductor rock backs to forward wall slides to QL dips that I do with my stairs. Um, sometimes it's just sitting in a deep squat and doing like overhead reach like Riley talked about, you know, deep squat with thoracic rotation. I'll pick three or four movements and just cycle them around for three or four sets each and move each day. That's really the key is being persistent and consistent with mobility. If you have 20 years of poor posture habits from sitting in front of a computer, you're not going to fix it by doing it once a week before you bench press. It's got to be every day. And the older you get, the more restricted you get, and the more you lift, because we lift at a partial range of motion. Part of powerlifting is reducing your ROM. You're going to shorten those muscles for that range of motion. But if you want to strengthen, then you have to lengthen. So you want to take those loads through fuller ranges of motion. And sometimes that can be as easy as when you finish your bench press session, do an actual set of chest flies. When I say an actual set of chest flies, I don't mean this bullshit. I mean, <laughs> let them all the way back and all the way up. It means using less weight, but you're lengthening under load. So you might be using 10 or 15 pound dumbbells instead of the 50s, but you're benefiting more because you're opening your shoulders up. Yep. So I wouldn't say I'd pick one or two, but I would pick areas that I would work on. And it would be hip mobility and shoulder mobility through things like prone swimmers, thoracic rotations, uh, adductor rock backs, uh, ATG split squats with your foot elevated, the pigeon raise I showed, the elevated pigeon raise, stuff like that. You know, taking care of your shoulders and hips on a daily basis isn't a lot of work. It's five minutes of work, but that five minutes of work every day is, is going to benefit you 5X. And people just simply don't do it. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I said in my story that like thoracic mobility and hip mobility is definitely the biggest things for the exact reasons that Trevor just said. And even if you're not someone who works at a desk all day, if you're doing manual labor, it's likely that you're hunched over also and in poor position and you're standing on your feet all day and whatever. So thoracic mobility, hip mobility. Um, I really, I think I actually have a like short little serious thing on my page of like thoracic things that I like. Um, I like, I don't know exactly what they're called. Trevor showed them to me, like where you, it's a lat, like a ball lat stretch, like stretch, um, reaching with the ball in front of you. That one's in my thoracic mobility thing. Um, Cause that one feels great for someone who's overly tight in the lats, but yeah, like squats with the thoracic rotation or just regular thoracic rotations. Um, I like the prone swimmers, prone Y's, prone A's, uh, hip 90 90s, the pigeon raises that we've put up. I think it's on the, I think it's on Trevor's page, the pigeon raise. Um, those feel great on hips and I have, that's where I tend to have the most issue is generally in my hips and the pigeon raise was really, really helpful for me. So, but yeah, it doesn't take, it doesn't take much. Like all it takes is a couple minutes, a couple times a day. Like if you brew coffee, that generally takes five minutes while you're brewing coffee, you can do a couple movements or while dinner is cooking or in the oven or whatever, you can do five to 10 minutes of a movement. It really isn't hard to get it in. Uh, it just is something that you have to prioritize doing. And if you don't want it to get better, it won't. You don't want to read Matt's comment. <laughs> Mobility is critical for quality of life when you start farting mummy dust. <laughs> Has been competing since 96. <laughs> Yeah, so Geo Marstrain talked about how the hip mobility work took away his knee pain. And yeah. really, that's what it's about. Like people will, will crap on warm-ups or crap on mobility. It's like, yeah, you don't necessarily have to. 
but you're going to get to a point where you want to. Yeah. Because why, why fight through your body's restrictions? Why fight through your body's pain? If you want to squat 500, 500 pounds, it's a lot easier to squat 500 pounds if your body isn't pulling 450 pounds in the other direction. You know, you want to go with your body, go with the flow, as they say, or flow with the go, whatever you want to call it. But you have to get to a point where you make these things a priority in your life. Uh, I always talk about the hardest things for you to do are the first things you should do. So if you're consistent with exercise and mobility, start your damn day with it. And now I'm not talking about your training session. If you're waiting till you get to your training session to do mobility and you've been stuck in traffic for 45 minutes and you're late and the gym closes an hour, don't be one of those people who are like, I didn't have time, so I just did accessories. Be better with your time management. You know, Do your mobility and warm-up stuff and trunk stuff in the morning. And when you get to the gym, you can get right to the weights if you want to because you're already loose. You just spend a couple extra sets of, of lighter weights warming up and go from there. It makes life that much easier to warm up and do things if you're prioritizing them and getting those tough things done early in the day rather than waiting till later because later never comes. If it's something that also makes you feel better and you know that it makes you feel better, why would you not prioritize that? Like, right. we've talked about how some people shit on mobility and they shit on warm ups and whatever it is. But if it actually is like making a difference, it's making you feel better and it gives you like a better quality of life because your knees don't hurt or whatever it is, why would you not do that just because someone said, well, warming up is stupid? All right, who cares? Yeah. It makes you feel better. Why not? <laughs> You can condition your hand to put it on a hot stove over time if you callous it and practice it day, but why the fuck would you? <laughs> People are like, well, you can. You just, it takes time and you condition and you won't feel it. Like, so? Why, why? would <laughs> Why would I live with stiff knees and a, and a bad back for my whole life if I don't have to? Yeah. And I love the, the comments someone's going to leave. You're going to hurt your back doing that. Dude. 80% of America, I saw a great quote. Uh, it says 80% of Americans will deal with low back pain. The other 20% are lying. <laughs> I'm like, that's spot on. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you do. Like if you, whether you're powerlifting or not lifting at all or doing nothing or sedentary, you're going to have back pain like Trevor mentioned. So just do what you want to do. If you want some great observational data, go to your local chiropractor, go to your local physical therapist and realize eight out of 10 patients there aren't athletes. There are sedentary people who are experiencing low back pain. You might as well lift the damn weights too and look good and be strong because you're less likely to see that doctor or that clinician because you're taking care of yourself to begin with. It's great observational data. It's kind of like going to Whole Foods and realize that everyone who goes to Whole Foods who thinks they're eating healthy because it's organic is actually overweight and unhealthy. It's the same observational data. You're going to realize that people are misled through marketing. So it hurts your back sitting on the couch too. You might as well do something with your life. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, let's go one more. Okay, this one's a little weird, um, but it kind of, we answered it a little bit already earlier. So how do people rep out squats so fast? I can't even rep out an empty bar. What's the secret? You, <laughs> you are deconditioned. Yes, <laughs> <You're> <laughs> definitely push your conditioning. Um, there are some people who can breathe and brace really fast, or if the weight's light enough, they're not taking a full brace. When I hurt my back initially 10 years ago, one habit I developed was taking a full brace from everything from the bar on up. So it can be so much more fatiguing. And I'm also a speed guy. I tend to put a lot of power into the bar. So that, that speed and power fatigue someone faster. But there are some people who just go like, and just keep going, take that short breath and keep going when the weight's lighting up and just rep them out. But like Riley said, that ability to handle hypoxia, which is a low oxygen level, is a conditioning factor. They've worked on their anaerobic level of conditioning so they can do that more frequently. And that is a deconditioned issue if you can't rep squats at a decent enough speed and it's taking you forever or you're having to breathe through them and so forth. You're basically just out of shape. Yeah, uh, breathing is probably something that you don't do 
well. Like, obviously you do it because you're alive and you breathe every single day. But majority of people kind of forget how to breathe and everything is shallow. And so that's why most people get so winded is because they're breathing shallow, shallow, shallowly, shallowly. That's not a word. They're breathing um, very shallow. <laughs> and so they don't know how to like diaphragmatically breathe anymore. And that's why people generally struggle to brace. And, you know, like if you ask someone like, where do you breathe when you're just hanging out? Like, I know most people don't think about that, but like most people when they breathe and they're not lifting, they have no problem breathing diaphragmatically into their belly. But for some reason, when we go to lift weights, they're like, I have to put all of my air in my chest. I have to, or I'll die. And it's like, that's not, that's not where it goes. But um, yeah, so definitely decondition, but also like uh, from the empty bar to your PR, like Trevor has talked about before, we have talked about before, everything has to be the same. So if you're being lazy with the empty bar because it's light, um, you're going to be lazy with the rest of your warmups and then you're gonna try to do something different for your PR and your body isn't gonna be conditioned to that. So from the empty bar all the way up to 100% of your max or whatever, you have to do everything the exact same. I don't care if it means that it takes you long and you look like you're moving the bar, the empty bar slow or you're, you, look, you feel silly because you're taking your time with the empty bar and it's light. Everything has to be the same. You have to condition yourself in order to lift the weights. So if you repetitively do that and you repetitively repeat your patterns, it's going to become autonomous. You don't have to think about it anymore. Do everything. Yeah, a great example of that is uh, Andrew Herbert, who's at multiple times, I think twice, has held the uh, all-time world record squat. I want to say for 242, maybe 275. I don't remember what weight class. But he's an exceptionally slow squatter on his descent and exceptionally slow on his ascent. Equally slow because for him, if he can stabilize the load, he can move it. If you've ever seen some of his videos of his warm-ups, his warm-ups are just as slow. It doesn't matter if it's like 827 pounds on the bar or if it's 135. He moves them at the same speed because that's how you build autonomy. You shouldn't have to think about anything when you're executing the bar. Hence, we always say be dumb strong. If you've built autonomy, you're not thinking about anything other than standing up. Simple yep. as that. Exactly. All right, cool. I think I was a good one. We got a lot of questions in here. Some of the questions we may not have gotten to, we will get to next week and so forth. I appreciate you guys for, uh, for supporting Culture Nutra, for supporting the podcast and sharing it and saving it and helping spread the word out there and for always sending us questions. That is appreciative. Thank you. So, Riley, have a good one. Trevor, have a good one. Thank you very much. And we will see you guys next week. And don't forget the podcast drops on Monday. If you missed some of it, you can listen to all of it. Thank you.